Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Well, uh, welcome to Icon. If I didn't uh, introduce myself before, my name is Justin, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here. It's good to be with you. We are in week two of our series in Genesis that we're calling Confronting Genesis. That is uh, just a mashup of uh, going through Genesis and uh, the book Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin that uh, Alona mentioned at the outset. Uh, I mentioned this last week. I'll do it again and then probably not again for the rest of the series, but uh, I am leaning heavily on this book, okay? So if there is a point at which you have read the book and I say something and you go, oh my gosh, he stole that from the book. Yeah, like that, uh, yes, I did. I I probably stole it directly from the book uh, because it's a fantastic book and um, that's the whole idea is to uh, deal with many of the themes from the book, overlay a few original ideas and the ones I do have aren't good. Uh, So uh, we're, we're leaning on this book. So um, here's, here's what we're going to do tonight. This is, uh, th- this was by far, as I looked forward towards this series, uh, this was the message uh, that I was the most nervous about, scared of, uh, unsure of, uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, a, a couple in particular. One, uh, I am not a scientist, I am barely a pastor, uh, but definitely not a scientist. Uh, Two, the idea of Christianity and science is a gigantic theme, a a huge idea that can go a hundred different directions. There have been volumes and volumes and volumes of books written about all of these things. And so just picking a direction is a challenge. Um, And then just when I thought I had an idea of what I wanted to do, Uh, last week happened, and uh, last Sunday we were here, and there was a question uh, during the Q&A that uh, was, at the time, I kind of laughed to myself when I read the question uh, uh, all week long and actually really shifted the way I'm thinking about uh, not just this message, but the whole series. So if you remember, if you were here last week, one of the questions in the Q&A was, um, is this whole series going to be an us versus them kind of thing? And, and when I first heard that, I thought, ha-ha, that, that's not what we're doing. And then I thought, wait, is that what we're doing? I hope that's not what we're doing. And then I started to think about, gosh, I think that's what we're doing. And uh, I don't want to do that because, uh, for a number of reasons, but mostly because that's not helpful. And more specifically... I think that um, one of the statistics we used last week to kind of describe this issue is the fact that um, only 16% of of people worldwide are atheists, right? 16%. And then over the next 60 years, that's actually expected to diminish to about the, the world that is atheist. I've got to imagine that it's even less here in this room, Right, I would imagine. Uh, and, and so am I really going to build a whole series uh, around speaking to uh, a, a demographic of people or a portion of our world that is such a small portion that eventually then just kind of misses uh, the rest of the people who are actually in the room? Now, I have no doubt, I know for sure, that some of you in the room are atheists, or at least agnostic, or at least uh, kind of atheist-interested. And, uh, and so I, I'm not, not saying that you aren't here or you're not important, uh, but what I'm saying is this, and this has just been my experience, and so it's true. 
but my experience has been twofold. One, that most of the people that we interact with in our world um, that, are, that are secular people, and just, I'll just use secular to say non-religious, okay, secular people, don't have a kind of well-formed that is consistently secular, consistently naturalistic, materialistic, right? Most of the people that we interact with live in this kind of vague soup of progressive ideas where uh, ideas like atheism or at least agnosticism overlap with uh, liberal to related, but not in ways that a person could often articulate very clearly. Again, just my experience, and I know that there are exceptions, and you may know a friend who's just got a very articulate, uh, comprehensive, put-together naturalistic worldview, and I'd like to meet them because uh, they're rare. So I think that's true. On the other hand, I think it's also true that very few Christians have a comprehensive, integrated, well-articulated worldview in which they could piece together their perhaps more, uh, in this world, conservative ethics, their theism, and their values in the world. In fact, I run into this all the time as a pastor. I, I'll, you know, talk about the gospel, talk about the gospel, talk about the gospel, and, and kind of people go, yeah, 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 we get it, we get it. Can we move on to some of the deeper things of Christianity? And I will often, uh, when I get that kind of feedback, say, yeah, absolutely. Just give me, just one second, give me, just articulate the gospel for me. Just, I will move on from it as soon, just, just, can you just tell me what it is? And so we're supposed to be good, but Jesus died so that when we're not good, we're still kind of good. And, and then we go to heaven and it's great. This, that's not exactly what they say, but it's close. And so what I found is that not only do the secular people in our lives not often having a very clearly articulated, connected, comprehensive worldview, but often the Christians in our lives don't either. That we too live in this kind of vague soup of gospel ideas and truisms and cliches that we kind of cobble together to describe what we think about gender or sexuality or science or human dignity or any of the things that we're going to be talking about during this series. And so uh, of those two problems, I can, in this moment, really only solve one of them. Most of you in this room are at least confessing Christians, uh, and that's not all of you, but, I, but it is most of you. And so what I can accomplish during this 12-week series is to help you connect some of your Christian ideas, understand that such a thing exists. Because I think for many of us, we'll talk about this more in a moment, but I think for many of us, we have this vague idea of what Christianity teaches on some of these topics and a kind of unsettling fear that it actually doesn't add up or make sense. And so if some smart person asked us even two questions, we might be grasping at straws. And maybe we would be. But that would be far more of a reflection on our 
willingness or ability to actually study the word and study theology even at a basic level to be able to put together what is and has been for now more than 2,000 years a very comprehensive, well-connected, integrated worldview than it is a suggestion about the worldview itself. Does that make sense? Either way. So what we're going to do over the next 12 weeks is we're going to take these ideas. So this week we're talking about Christian science. Next week we're talking judgment and diversity and all kinds of, you know, boring, irrelevant topics. And we're going to try to look at them through a Christian worldview. And certainly there will be moments where we have to draw distinctions between what Christians believe and what secular people believe and think about certain things. But my aim will be to create a vision for you, a, a kind of a, a connected vision of ideas that makes you at least be able to, when the moment comes, say, yeah, here's what Christianity, or here's even just what I believe about this issue, and here's why. And to be able to give even a two-minute version, which you ahead of the game compared to some of your peers. Okay? So we'll try that. Sound good? Okay. <laughs> Again, either way, that's what we're doing. So, so this evening, we're going to talk about three things. One, that Christianity is pro-science. Two, that science is pro-Christianity. And three, that Christianity and science need each other. That's what we're going to do. Shouldn't take but 23 minutes and 55 seconds that I have left. Let's get going. One, Christianity is pro-science even when Christians haven't been. So um, it is uh, a misnomer, let me just establish this from the beginning, that it is a misnomer that Christianity is anti-science. And perhaps you've heard stories about Galileo or Copernicus and how the Catholic Church was against them and, and their kind of heliocentric vision of the world that that means that the earth is at the center instead of the sun being at the center of the universe. And when these guys posited this idea that the Catholic Church shut them down, and therefore the church, no doubt, that certain Catholic powerful people at the time wanted to quiet Copernicus and Galileo, but for reasons that weren't entirely scientific, actually, and uh, the story is, is actually uh, pretty interesting. But on the positive side of things, did we know that the scientific method itself, the way in which scientists go about understanding our world was actually developed by two devote Christ, devoted Christians and popularized by two others. So two Franciscan friars, one by the name of Roger Bacon and another by the name of William of Ockham, actually invented the science and Christianity connections. I think that's a very winsome argument for Christianity personally. And then another guy named Robert Boyle. All of them devoted Christians, several of whom actually considered going into the ministry. Boyle in particular wrote that he decided to be a scientist because he believed that that was the greater way that he could serve the Lord. 
As many of you know, Christianity has a long, has long valued education, founded most of the first uh, educational systems and universities in our world, like Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, all of the ones you've heard of were begun by Christians at, out of a desire to learn more about God's world. In fact, Princeton professor and philosopher of science by the name of Hans Halverson argues that theism provides the best foundation for scientific inquiry because, quote, it believes our universe was designed and created by God according to a blueprint that can be discerned that, that kind of gave a philosophical foundation for science in the first place so that we look at the world and go, okay, Christians believe that the world was made by a designer, created on purpose with laws that govern it. It was made as a reflection of the character of God. And what we know about God is God is an ordered God. God has character. God is a God that wanted to express God's self to the rest of his creation. And it was, in fact, that philosophical theological conviction that motivated the first scientists to even explore science in the first place. Because before Christianity, paganism essentially saw the world as the playground of the gods and that, that were mostly capricious and unpredictable and would fight and their fights would create lightning and storms and all these kinds of things. And so the world, the earth itself, was unknowable. And it was in large part this Christian conviction about who God is and what God created that even motivated people to do scientific inquiry in the first place. Because of this, the very scientists from the very beginning. So I want to read for you some of these names. And if you uh, don't recognize them, you should just probably go back to science class. Have you heard of Isaac Newton? Good, we'll start with an easy one. Laws of gravity and motion. A guy by the name of Michael Faraday, who it, uh, understood electromagnetism and is considered the greatest experimental scientist possibly of all time still today. Very much a Christian. James Clerk Maxwell, who was the pioneer of physics, um, really pioneered the whole idea of physics in the first place. Lord Kelvin of the Kelvin uh, uh, unit of measurement that nobody uses. So, but like he was a lord. And he was in fact the first scientist to argue that the age of the earth was in the millions, not in the thousands. A Belgian Roman Catholic priest named, and I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm going to read his name, but when I read it, it's French, Belgian, I guess, French, same thing. And uh, when I thought, oh, I can never pronounce that, like it made it worse, okay? Felt worse about my ability to pronounce it. But it's Georges Lem, it's something. You, you're not, you, you wouldn't know it anyway. You honestly would not know it. But this Belgian Roman Catholic priest invented the idea of the Big Bang. Yes! <laughs> he really did! And in fact, when he first posited the theory of the Big Bang, he was met with a ton of resistance by atheists uh, because, and Stephen uh, McLaughlin quotes Stephen Hawking talking about this, because the idea that the universe had a beginning, in his words, smacked of divine intervention. 
And so the theory that preceded the Big Bang was what they called steady state theory, which basically said that the universe had always existed and that there was no beginning. And so this Belgian Roman Catholic priest comes along and says, no, actually, there was a beginning. And it was this, he called it a cosmic egg, but basically the idea of like this super hot center that bang created all matter and being in the universe. And it was atheists who said, no, that sounds too much like uh, a creation story, a beginning story, and that smacks of divine intervention. A, a man named Asa Gray, who was uh, Darwin, Charles Darwin's closest collaborator. They had over 300 letters written back and forth between them. And the only thing that he, so he, he collaborated with Darwin on his theory of macroevolution. And the, the only kind of critique that he brought over and over and over was that the way Asa Gray saw this theory developing was that clearly God was the first cause behind all of the causes. And this was the idea in which Gray and Darwin diverted. Lastly, uh, Gregor Mendel, a Roman Catholic friar, was, to quote Richard Dawkins, the founding genius of genetics, that in his uh, little monastery, he studied pea pods and the ways in which pea pods replicated and discovered the entire field of genetics. So from the very beginning, Christianity has devoted a ton of resources, both mental and financial, um, to the exploration of God's created world. That Christianity, not maybe not all Christians, but Christianity has always been very pro-science. That is very consistent with our theology to guys uh, are long dead and now things are different and now all the scientists are non-Christians. But that's not the case either. In fact, most studies suggest that as many as 40% of working scientists hold religious beliefs worldwide. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book uh, names 11 Christian professors, and these are professors who are publicly Christian, uh, 11 just at MIT alone in a place and space that is not super comfortable to be publicly Christian. 11 professors at MIT, that's, that's one of the good schools that I didn't even apply to including professors of nuclear science, aeronautics, astronautics, don't know what that is, electrical engineering, biology, history, and neuroscience, who was also the first female president of MIT. So does any of this prove that Christianity is true? No. But if Christianity is inconsistent with modern science, no one thought to tell these people including Francis Collins, who is maybe the most famous Christian scientist in the world today, who uh, uh, began and ran the Human Genome Project and now is the director of the National Institute of Health uh, and a world-renowned scientist and Christian. As Christians, we ought to be the most pro-science people in the world. We believe that science, done honestly and well, will only point to the creator in the end. Francis Bacon, one of the famous Christian Bacons. One day, Kevin. Uh, wrote, 
true that a little philosophy, and back in those days, philosophy in, was included science, so he's saying science. It is true that a little bit of philosophy inclineth a man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth a man's mind about to religion. That if we just get kind of an idea, a vague idea, if we push just a little bit into science, yes, we may begin to question some of our long-held beliefs, but if we push further and further and further, all of a sudden things begin to get clearer and all of a sudden an idea about God and a conviction about God's universe reappears as a viable way to think about the world. And let me say this. If not, if the further we push into science just, just continues to make the world appear more and more and more atheistic, and if you get all the way down to the bottom of science and the world just appears as Dawkins describes as just a pitiless indifference, just a nothingness, then don't be a Christian. As a Christian, you are afraid of scientific inquiry, that there is something inside of you that doubts and is maybe afraid that if we do enough science, we'll eventually disprove God. And I'll just say this, if they ever disprove God, I'll stop being a pastor. If they ever disprove, if God is not real, then we are wasting our time. Because if our convictions about God and the Bible and the universe are true, then we will only discover clearer and clearer the truth about God. And if the opposite, opposite is true, then this is all a farce and let's go home. Number two, science is pro-Christianity even when it doesn't want to be. We've already talked about the Big Bang and the founding of science itself, both of which, if not point towards Christianity or a theistic worldview, certainly are in harmony with it, but there's more. A psychologist Justin Barrett, who is a former researcher at the Institute for Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at Oxford, smart guy doing smart things at smart places, wrote a book called Why Would Anyone Believe in God? And it's, he is considered the founding father of evolutionary psychology of religion. In his book, he argues that the human propensity towards religious belief is a product of our evolutionary development. So here, here's what that means. Evolutionists will look at, and secular evolutionists in particular, will look at a, part, a, a people group, a culture in the history of the world that wasn't in some way religious. This, this, the propensity towards religiosity is almost universal. And I say almost just because I don't know everything and there might be an exception, but it is basically universal. And so evolutionary psychologists look at that and go, okay, why? Why is that universal? And so uh, this, this guy, Justin Barrett, uh, writes this book about evolutionary psychology of religion, and he describes it this way in Rebecca McLaughlin's uh, book. He says this. He uses this illustration of a tiger. He says this, if our forebears saw a shape that might have been a tiger, they were more likely to survive if they assumed it was a tiger intent on harming them than if they assumed it was just a tiger-shaped rock. Expect a tiger, get a rock, no harm, no foul. Expect a rock and get a tiger, game over. Paint that thinking on a larger canvas so the reasoning goes and you'll start seeing gods behind storms and droughts. 
Okay, so um, this field of study has basically said that we have, humans have, over time, developed this kind of trigger in us that if there is something unknown that we will see a deity behind it because maybe there is a deity behind it and it's better to just think that there might be a deity behind it that we could please or interact with rather than thinking storms are random and then be wrong. Okay, and so atheists, atheists uh, saw this and, and, and in fact... Barrett is a Christian and now a professor at Fuller Seminary. He says, if there is a God with whom we are meant to be in a personal relationship, then how probable is it that engagement in such a relationship would happen to be good for us? So he actually looks at it the other way and says, well, if there is something in us that makes it more likely for us as a species to believe in God, and in fact, such a belief actually protects us and makes, kind of allows us to flourish and is good for us, then isn't it just as likely that the God who designed the universe also designed the universe so that belief in him would be good for us? In fact, uh, last week, if you were here, we looked at a whole bunch of statistics, uh, maybe too many, uh, but I like statistics. And so we looked at a bunch of statistics about how uh, religious devotion correlates with health and flourishing even today. We quoted Jonathan Haidt saying that uh, the NYU secular psychologist saying, listen, uh, sacrificial, they are the best citizens in your city. It just so happens that religious belief correlates with health happiness and thriving. And so someone like Barrett, who's this evolutionary psychologist, looks at that and goes, yeah, that makes sense if there were a creator that created the world in which obeying and being in relationship with him was good, that it would also create a world where that had good outcomes. There's this other idea uh, in science, which I think is uh, interesting. Michael Reese, who is a Cambridge uh, astronomer, wrote a book called Just Six Numbers, The Deep Forces That Shape the Universe. And the thesis of this book is that there's these six numbers that kind of govern the universe. And they are numbers that have to do with gravity and have to do with physics and other science things. He says this. If any of these six numbers were even fractionally different, there would be no stars, no earth, no life. Okay, so he looks at the entirety of the universe and says, gosh, these six numbers, and some of them are like 0. .0000001 is a number that's different, then we wouldn't have gravity, therefore we wouldn't have life on earth. And he looks at these six numbers that are kind of just these amazingly big or incredibly small numbers, and they all have to be perfect in order for this thing to be real, which scientists call the fine-tuning of the universe, that is only this combination of things that could support life on Earth. And he says there's basically three options to how something like this could come about. One, pure chance. Just absolute pure chance, which he actually dismisses as improbable. Two, that there is a God, that God designed the universe and so kind of tuned it perfectly like a master musician tuning in their instrument, that he created it perfectly to sustain life and his vision for creation. And in fact, Reese, who's not a Christian, is just an atheist uh, secular professor, 
says, actually, this is more probable than the idea that it's just random chance. And he names several of his peers, scientific peers, who hold uh, to that theory. And he says, we can't prove it, but it's plausible. The third ogling number of parallel universes, an infinite number of parallel universes, and we just happen to live in the one where all the numbers add up and can sustain life. And so these are the three options that uh, scientists kind of see in front of them. And most would prefer the option that says there are in the idea that there is a designer God. Neither at this point can be proven either false or true. And the list goes on. Uh, in fact, Nobel winning physicist, Nobel Prize winning physicist William Phillips kind of sums it up this way. He says, why do I believe in God? As a physicist, I look at nature from a particular perspective. I see an orderly, beautiful universe in which nearly all physical phenomena can be understood from a few simple mathematical equations. I see a universe that, had it been constructed slightly differently, would never have given birth to stars and planets, let alone bacteria and people. And there is no good scientific reason for why the universe should not have been different. Many good scientists have concluded from these observations that an intelligent God must have chosen to create the universe with such beautiful, simple, and life-giving properties. Many other equally good scientists are nevertheless atheists. Both conclusions are positions of faith, but not conclusive. I believe in God because I can feel God's presence in my life, because I can see the evidence of God's goodness in the world, because I believe in love, and because I believe that God is love. So I think science is pro-Christianity. I think there's a lot of scientific discovery that is in, in harmony with Christian faith and Christian belief and a Christian understanding of the cosmos. What I don't believe is that the science that we know today, and science is dynamics, we're always learning more and more and more. I don't believe that science we know today uh, uh, either closes the door on Christian faith nor closes the gap perfectly. In fact, from the very beginning of Christianity, we have always understood our faith as just that. It's a faith. Now, here's what I think the power of something like this can do. I think for many of us, we think about science being over here and God and faith and Christianity being over here. And so there is to be able to bridge the gap between science and God. Now, some Christians would have you believe that there is in fact no gap whatsoever and that science absolutely proves Christianity in every single way. And that's silly. That's silly, because from the first, Christianity claims to be a faith, that Jesus himself called us to faith, which means that there is a gap between the evidence that we see around us and the claims of Christianity, the claims of Scripture. So the value of understanding stuff like this for us as Christians is to know that the gap of faith is not this, it's this. It doesn't come all the way together. 
There, there is an existential reality to our faith. There is an ask of faith. There is a moment at which God leans out and goes, will you, will you trust Will you be with me? Do you see enough evidence? Have I, I don't think the science is conclusive, but here's what I know. I've seen the work of God in my life, and that's what bridges the gap that does exist. Last, Christianity and science need each other. Stanford neuroscientist Bill Newsom poses this question. He says, do we live in a universe where our highest values and institutions about ethical behavior are in touch with the central reality of the universe and the reason the universe was built from the beginning? Or are our highest values and ethical intuitions kind of a joke, an accident that really have nothing to do with what the universe is about? Here's what he's saying. We as, as humans, we have shared values. That no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter where life has brought us, we have shared values. We have, as he calls them, ethical intuitions. We, we can, as a people, look at situations and go, that ain't right. There's something deeply wrong about this. Questions of reality that all humans throughout time and space have agreed upon and said, no, this is what is true. This is what is real. This is what is right. And this is what is wrong. This is what is meaningful. And so Bill Newsom, this Stanford neuroscientist, simply says that is either those, those intuitions that we have and that, that sense of meaning, which is the claim of Christianity, or it's not. It's a joke. It's an accident, which is the claim of secularism. And so um, I think Christianity and science need each other deeply. Because science can answer the questions of what, and it can even answer sometimes the questions of how, but it can never answer the questions of why. In fact, one of the, one of the most interesting kind of dilemmas that the scientific community still faces is the idea of consciousness. The, the, what we can measure in terms of atoms and synapses and all of the physical reality of our brains doesn't add up to consciousness. Like there, we, we shouldn't be able to be aware of ourselves in the way that we are. They, they can't tell that story. So what's, what, what's kind of ironic is that scientists can't actually tell us why we can do science. There, there's, a, there's a fundamental disconnect there. And I, I don't mean that as a, as a slam on scientists whatsoever. It's just that there is an overestimation of what science can deliver on. And it's that gap between what it can and cannot deliver on that faith and specifically Christianity fills. That Christianity and the, the Christian story tells the story of why. It makes sense of our, sen of our personhood, of our sense of agency. It makes sense of things like love and care and hurt and pain and all of it. So Christianity and science need each other because science has limitations as to what it can do. And Christianity 
needs science because science presses into reality in ways that we as humans would not otherwise do. Which brings us finally to Genesis chapter 1. Told you at the beginning we weren't going to spend a ton of time in the actual text in part because that's not what we're trying to do with this series. Whole claim of Genesis 1 rather than get lost in the details of each day and what happened and how, did, how was there light before the sun and all those kinds of things. And what we see when we read Genesis 1 through this lens. Imagine reading this passage without modern science. Imagine just coming to this passage as it is, as a, maybe a pre-modern person, or you were born in a cave, or like, I don't know, Puyallup or something, and you just didn't have access to education. Is that not far enough away? I'll pick a, be a better place next time. Bellingham. And... Um, and just imagine coming to this passage and going, hey, this is the creation account. You would read that and go, oh, okay, so this, the universe on a, in a very systematic and mechanical way created the world. And absent any outside input, that would be your conclusion. But see, science has been a gift to us in this sense. Because we have discovered through archaeology, we have studied through the work of sociology. We have discovered through scientific inquiry that this is not exactly actually what God is trying to communicate to God's people through this passage. I don't believe that Genesis 1 is intended to be an account of the mechanics of how God created the universe. And, and, and even a, a kind of basic understanding of Near Eastern texts like Enuma Elish and these other kind of Babylonian and Egyptian texts that have massive overlap of language and all of this would reveal to you with just pretty basic levels of understanding, which is what I have. Um, you begin to read this and go, oh, no, the author is doing something very different here. And so, so much of what has caused conflict between Christianity and science, literalistic reading of Genesis 1, really got started in the 20th century. But it has caused this conflict that is absolutely unnecessary and, and ill-advised at every level. So, science needs Christianity because Christianity can tell us some of the why that, that science is not, is not and should not be doing. And Christianity needs science because it, it forces us to push more deeply and ask better questions and to think harder about the things that we read and the things that we believe. It's a challenge. Increasingly secular society to hold to religious belief and to hold to scientific belief. It's hard. And most of what's going on around us is not helping us accomplish that. Most of it causes us to ask more questions than it does to find answers. And so if anything, what I want you to hear tonight is to push more deeply into both your faith and into the scientific evidence around us. That if Christianity is true, that science done well and done honestly and done humbly will only eventually reveal to us more and more and more about the character and will of our God.
That's, that's why God gave us the brains to be able to do this stuff in the first place. Because he knew that eventually it would get us back to him. Um, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God. And in it, he addresses the idea of miracles. And there's this one section that I want to read for us to finish. He says, biblical miracles lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. You never see him say something like, see that tree over there? Watch me make it burst into flames. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, and raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. See, this is, the, this is one of my favorite things about Christianity. That it is so supernatural and divine and makes claims about the cosmos and makes this big kind of, this, 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 it's a huge faith. It, it, it describes God as being above all things. And at the very same moment, cares deeply for the smallest grain of sand. Because every grain, every atom, every movement of every atom in the world is governed by God, designed by God, cherished by God, and will be redeemed by God. That on the cross, we see this perfect connection, this perfect intersection of the supernatural and the natural. That God, the great creator and redeemer and restorer, comes into the, the nitty-gritty details of creation in order to redeem it from the inside out. This is a faith that holds together both the natural and the supernatural, the divine and the material, because the God of the universe made it and loves it and pursues it and will one day heal it. So may we as Christians never, ever be opposed to good science. All right. Let's uh, look at a few questions here. Most of these questions are about the same thing. Uh, Genesis 1. Go figure. Uh, so let me, let me read... Uh, yeah, let me read one of them and, and kind of talk for a bit. It says, any way you slice it, we see evidence of things happening that appear to have been going on longer than 6,000 years and longer than even the evolutionary timeline for origin of man. How do you reconcile this with the, with the clear six-day creation narrative in Genesis or even statements from later books like Mark saying God made them male and female? 
is Jesus speaking of Adam and Eve, or someone before Adam and Eve, or some evolutionary ancestor before man emerged, or simply the information and DNA that drove the emergence of man in unaided fashion? Was man created in Genesis timeline and fashion, or do we need to parse? This is the best part. I mean, it's all good. Parse, uh, was, was man created in the Genesis timeline and fashion, or do we need to parse the literal text of the Bible through the lens of modern discoveries? Uh, first, I'll say this. You get one question, okay? Um, so uh, the other questions are related to this, and so I want to touch on a couple pieces. One, um, the, the use of the word literal when talking about how we read Genesis 1 is not a helpful word um, because uh, we, we as humans communicate all the time in ways that use metaphor and use uh, more precise language to describe things, right? And we do this all the time and we are able as humans to understand that when we're talking with each other. So if someone does something and you go, oh man, you're killing me, nobody thinks that you're actually dying, right? Right? Just, just for future reference. So uh, nobody thinks that. We're able to just be humans that talk in normal ways and we use metaphor and non-metaphor interchangeably. So if I said, uh, if, if you said to me, you're killing me, and I said, uh, oh, am I? I would be not taking you literally. To take you literally is just to say, I understand what you're saying, and you, what you're saying to me is, I'm, I'm, uh, you don't like what I'm doing, that I am hurting you in some way, right? Whether it's just socially or relationally or whatever the case may be. Okay, so when we come to the Bible, we have this same human ability to decipher between what is to be read as a historical uh, account, like something like Luke, where Luke and Acts, he starts at the beginning saying, I was an eyewitness account to these things, and I'm writing for you my eyewitness account, okay? We open up, say, Song of Solomon and the Psalms, and we read, and we go, oh, yeah, that's a poem, or that's a song. That's a, that we, we understand genres of literature, and we understand that Jesus, even when he was speaking, would often use parables and metaphors to make statements. So, we have this ability to do, to do this in real life. And so when we come to the biblical text, all we have to do is the same thing. To look at a text and go, okay, what was the intention of this author? What were they trying to communicate? And who were they trying to communicate to? And how were they trying to communicate that thing, right? So when we come to Genesis 1, we have to ask all of the same questions. Okay. What is the original author trying to communicate? Whom, to whom is the author trying to communicate to? And how is the author doing this? Right. So to say, well, if you're going to take the Bible literally, you have to take all of it literally, is a thing nobody does anywhere. And so is, is kind of a silly way to talk about it. Right. So we look at Genesis 1, and I will say, I look at Genesis 1, and I'll say we at Icon look at Genesis 1, and most of Christian history actually looks at Genesis 1 and says, is this intended to be a scientific account of the mechanism by which God created the world? No. 
And even if it was, you were talking about a pre-modern, ancient Near Eastern document. And for reasons that God chose, and we will one day find out, God has always communicated himself through the words and language of real people in real time, right? So that's why when we read the New Testament, we see all these allusions to agrarian society. We see uh, parables about lambs and sheep and tares of wheat. And I read that and go, I have no idea what that's talking about. I've never torn wheat before. I don't know what that means. That's a joke. It's not that kind of tear. Okay. Um, so I have to translate it from a, I have to translate Jesus in a sense, I mean literally translate from Greek to English, somebody else has largely done that for me, but I still have to translate his uh, metaphor to be able to understand what he's saying because he's talking to the people he was actually looking at and talking to, okay? So now you back up to Genesis chapter one and you've got this ancient Near Eastern pre-modern society using language that those people would understand and metaphor that those people would understand and structure even of the text itself that those people understand. And so it would be not just unwise, but in, in a sense uh, unfair and even maybe disrespectful to the text itself to come at it with modern scientific lens, asking it to answer modern scientific questions. It never set out to answer modern scientific questions. The, the writers themselves had no ability to answer modern scientific questions. So it's, a, it's kind of a farcical problem to even enter into. Uh, and the fact that it, it kind of became a thing was more a response to the way culture was moving in the early 20th century. And it, the, the kind of fundamentalist movement of the early 20th century was a response to uh, liberal Christianity on more social fronts. And so fundamentalism became a thing that we're now trying to undo. So this kind of fundamentalist, literalistic reading of Genesis 1 is A, new, B, unfair and unwise to the text itself, and C, ah, oh, you always got to come up with a third thing, dumb, okay? Um, it's, not, it's not a good way to read your Bible, okay? So that unpacks all kinds of questions about Adam and Eve, which was the first kind of question. We got to, uh, how, how do we think about Adam and Eve and how do we think about male and female and how do we think about these things? And because I'm running out of time, I'm going to generalize. We're going to get into this in the next couple weeks because we're going to teach through the rest of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The big idea of Genesis 1 is God did it. God did it on purpose. God did it as a reflection of God's character. God did it in love and out and, you know, kind of like out of love, through love. It was a loving, creative act of God. And, it, it, and I, I can't get too far into this, but I would love, if anyone wants to talk about this later, I would love it because I finally get to use my seminary degree, which is like once a year. This text is a direct confrontation 
to the claims of Babylonian, Assyrian, Hittite, Egyptian creation stories that essentially argued with much of the same language. What's so powerful about Genesis 1 is that it co-ops much of the language from documents like I mentioned before, the Enuma Elish, which make creation claims about the world, it co-ops the language to be able to communicate uh, a different vision for creation. Much of ancient Near Eastern vision of creation was there was chaos because the gods were fighting each other. In fact, the Enuma Elish, which is one of the kind of foremost uh, uh, ancient Near Eastern documents, basically argues that there was a war between two gods. One god defeated the other god, Marduk, was the winning god, and created the world out of the empty husk of the body of the other god. Okay, this was the argument. And so a lot of the language that was common in these other creation accounts is co-opted in Genesis 1, but ordered in such a way to kind of draw attention to and give glory to God who didn't create out of war, who didn't create out of chaos, but created out of nothing and by love. It was a, a deeply kind of... Uh, 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 sadistic kind of uh, way to talk about creation and the nature of being and the nature of God in a way that, that confronted all of their kind of neighboring cultures and peoples. Much the same way, and I'll end with this, much the same way that John chapter 1 starts with, in the beginning was the word, right? In the beginning was the logos. And in Greek society, the logos was kind of the central orienting principle of wisdom. And John co-ops that word and says, yeah, there is a logos. There is a primary organizing principle in the universe, and it's Jesus. Taking language from the culture and co-opting it and saying, no, 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 yeah, you've got this good idea, but you're missing the point. Much the same way the author of Genesis takes a lot of that same language and structure and goes, yeah, but you're missing it. God is the creator God, and it wasn't created out of war. It was created out of a loving desire to reflect his character in the world and make something that he could have relationship with, a redemptive, loving relationship, which was such a different vision than any other culture or belief system at the time. Again, would love to talk more about this because I spent way too much time reading these texts and uh, would love to talk about them more. And we'll get into it more in these coming weeks because uh, it'll get harder and better all at the same time. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.